If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 518. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You've already heard about it. Get that free class. Buy one of the classes. That keeps this podcast free of charge, or buy 12 of the classes. I do have a new class coming out in the first week of October. It will be the last new class for 2021. You're going to want this class, 26 Speeches That Changed America. It is really good stuff. So, If you're on that email list, you're going to get some coupons for it. If you're not on the email list, you won't get coupons for it. So you want the coupons so you can get a deal on it when it first comes out. Also, you can click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com, throw a few pennies my way. You can go to anchor.fm. You can become a subscriber there. For the Brian McClanahan Show, you can buy a book plate. You can get my autograph of one of my books, purchase one of my books, my latest Southern Scribblings and the Jeffersonian Tradition, both great books. You can click on that shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff, all kinds of ways to support the show. But as always, share the show around on social media, rate it where you get your podcasts, let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That is the key. Now, I'm going to start this week of the Brian McClanahan Show with an essay that I found very, very interesting. I've been, I've been critical of Robert Elder and his new book on John C. Calhoun. There are some problems with it. And my main problem with Elder is that I feel like he's trying to play the middle. He doesn't want to come out and say too many positive things about Calhoun because that can be career-ending. If you defend John C. Calhoun in the modern political climate, as I've done, as I know there's a couple other people have done, it can end your career. Now, in the other case, if you keep under the wraps about it and just kind of say some positive things here and there, nobody's going to notice much. But the way to advance your career in the modern academy is to denounce Calhoun. I mean, that's the way to do it. And so Elder writes this book on Calhoun. It's a, it's a massive book. It's, you can probably see it over my shoulder behind me. I've got it on my bookcase. It's a massive book. It's, uh, it's, there are parts of it that aren't bad. But, but Elder actually says that he believes Calhoun directly led to the Dylan Roof situation. I mean, it's just... But then in this piece, he says you can't trace something back to a historical figure. I mean, so you see, Cal, he's trying to play both sides. He understands in the book, and, I, and I've seen this with other historians. He understands that in order to get a job and tenure and all the accolades that come from the academy, you can't just come out and say that well, you know you people in the academy are just kind of stupid, and you're saying a lot of dumb things, and this is actually the real Calhoun. You can't do that. Just like uh, Nicoletti, Cynthia Nicoletti, who wrote a little book on uh, secession and, uh, and the, trial of the, the trial of Jefferson Davis that never happened. She actually says in the beginning, 
Well, I mean, you know, Jay Davis's uh, defense attorneys were pretty right about a lot of things, uh, it seems, but I don't want to like them. I don't want to come on the side. Well, they were right because they were right. It doesn't matter if you want to like them or not. You don't have to like them, but their arguments can be right. And so at the end, she says, well, I mean, all this stuff they said about secession might be true, but then there's Texas v. White. And please don't hold this against me that I wrote this book that seems very pro-secession. She's pleading with the establishment not to hold it against her because she knows the powers that be in the establishment would crucify her for this. You've written a pro-secession book. Well, you can't be hired. You've written a pro-Calhoun book. Well, you're stuck at Baylor for the rest of your life. Elder doesn't want to be at Baylor for the rest of his life, I don't think. He probably wants to go on to Harvard or Yale or somewhere like that. Well, you write a pro-Calhoun book, you're never leaving Baylor. You're going to be stuck there your entire life. That's where you're going to be. And if that's fine, if that's what you like, if you like Baylor and you want to be in Texas, and that's good. And there's a lot of people that love just to be, there's a lot of people that love just to have a job, a tenured job at a university that can't even find an adjunct position that pays halfway decent. So look, I understand what people are doing. The job market stinks, but this distorts the historical record. But I admire Elder for writing this piece that I'm going to talk about. It's about the filibuster because what you have now, of course, you've got the Democrats all up in arms that there are a couple of people in the Senate who won't back down from getting rid, not, not allowing the Senate to get rid of the filibuster, to just simply say we're going to go majoritarian vote and that's it. And so the, the narrative has become on the left, the filibuster is all about slavery. It's all about Jim Crow. It's all about race. In fact, the guy who really created it was John C. Calhoun. And if it wasn't for John C. Calhoun, the defender of slavery, then we wouldn't have this real problem in America today. You see, it's all Calhoun's fault. You might as well be getting this from the right as well because you've got people like Michael Anton saying the real problem with the with the old right is John C. Calhoun. we got to get rid of John C. Calhoun. We just didn't have John C. Calhoun. America would be in a right place. You see, John C. Calhoun messed everything up. This is Hugh Hewitt. The man is evil. Ridiculous. Stupid. But this piece by Elder, Bob Elder, no, John C. Calhoun didn't invent the filibuster. No, he didn't. And he gets into the, I, I like, so I'm going to read this. It's pretty good. He says, in his classic book, The Historian's Craft, the historian Mark Bloch warned his fellow historians against worshiping the idol of origins, the idea that current events could be traced back to singular, pure, or first causes in the past that promised to lay bare the true nature of things in the present. I've thought of Bloch's warning every time I read an op-ed confidently proclaiming as one recent piece in the New York Review of Books put it, that the, quote, filibuster was invented by John C. Calhoun to uphold slavery and white supremacy. This claim has been repeated so often and straightforwardly by journalists, newspaper editorialists, podcasters, and even historians over the last several months that it has become the preferred tactic for kneecapping the filibuster in 280 characters or less on Twitter. As far as I can tell, the idea has been popularized by Adam Gentleson's recent book, Kill Switch, which argues that the Senate filibuster is to blame for the stagnation of our democracy. In an interview on NPR's Morning Edition earlier this year, Gentleson host told host Terry Gross that, quote, the progenitor of the filibuster, its main innovator, was John C. Calhoun, the great nullifier, the leader, father of the Confederacy. Now, let me pause there for a second. Calhoun was not the father of the Confederacy. He was dead 11 years before it was created. 
He's not the father of the Confederacy at all. Calhoun always said he was a Union man. Now, he did believe that if the United States government wouldn't abide by the Constitution, then there was no reason not to secede. But the secessionists in South Carolina didn't like Calhoun. They didn't think he was secessionist enough. So he wasn't the father of the Confederacy. This is something that Elder kind of alludes to as well in his book, that Calhoun was the father of the Confederacy. This, there's a problem here. Now, in other things, he said he's not. So see, again, Elder's book is trying to play a game, and that's why I don't like it. There's one of the main reasons I don't like it. So here, he, this is now Elder continues. Calhoun was a zealous defender of slavery and a determined critic of major, majority rule, but he did not invent the filibuster. Setting the record straight is not a defense of the filibuster and even less of Calhoun. Instead, it is a reassertion of the inconvenient fact that history rarely provides easy answers and that we should be wary when told it does. Now, look, yeah, you can't, history doesn't prove anything other than that this is what these people did at these times. You can, you can start seeing trends, though, in history, and I think that's something that you have to point out. It's something I've, look, I've done. Um, it's fun, it's catchy to say things like Hamilton screwed up America, but even in that book, I talk about what Hamilton was doing, and of course, that leads to trends that continue out, and then of course, you got the Supreme Court doing what they're doing, basing their arguments on Hamilton. So you can say, well, here's this one guy that uh, he started some things that other people have finished. So you can draw lines. Same thing with Lincoln. Lincoln was better than anyone uh, in some ways uh, uh, than some current presidents. Though I've also made the case that you know, was Trump better than Lincoln. It was a fun podcast, and people got very upset about that because Trump didn't uh, slaughter a million Americans. So that's one thing, right? Like most historical origin myths, parts of the story are true. The filibuster as we know it today is an unintended consequence of rule changes made in the 20th century. Yet scholars point to several pre-Civil War episodes of obstruction that form a kind of prehistory of the filibuster. Gentleson focuses selectively on three of these episodes between 1826 and 1848 to claim that Calhoun invented the filibuster. But while scholars do point to these episodes, among others, as part of the filibuster's history, none of them makes the claim that Calhoun invented it. In order to make that much stronger claim stick, Gentleson ignores a lot of context and contradictory evidence. The first episode happened in 1826 when Calhoun, presiding over the Senate as John Quincy Adams' vice president, but also his political rival, refused to stop Senator John Randolph of Virginia during a vicious harangue against Adams. Gentleson portrays Calhoun as purposely departing from Senate norms and permanently weakening the power, weakening the power of the Senate's presiding officer to reign in obstructionists, setting the stage for the filibuster. Calhoun had studied the Senate's rules carefully before taking office, and in response to complaints by Adams' supporters, he argued that senators could only be called to order by their colleagues or by a president pro tempore, appointed from among their own ranks, not by the vice president acting in his capacity as president of the Senate. It would be dangerous, Calhoun argued, for an officer of the executive branch to take on himself the authority to limit debate in the legislative branch. Well, this is true. I mean, look, Calhoun is pointing out something that's true. The founding generation, if you go back and read the arguments against the Constitution, one of them was the Senate blended the executive and the legislature. And it was told that was not going to be the case. So Calhoun is keenly aware of that. And even Elder says this. He says, An interpretation we might be newly sympathetic to after witnessing a chief executive 
try to use his vice president as a battering ram to derail the certification of an election in the Senate in January. Yeah, we might be uh, uh, sympathetic to. There's a lot about Calhoun we could be sympathetic to. This is the little video I did for Abbeville U, where I said, you know, Cal- John C. Calhoun's a great American. Look at what he said about government. The left and the right could get on board with these things. But yet we have this mental block because we're a bunch of emotivist fools in America. Oh, well, Calhoun said some mean things about some people that I don't like today. So guess what? I can't like John C. Calhoun. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This far lefty Gentleson calls Calhoun's reasoning, and if you have kids in the car, well, I won't say this, BS, right? Calls it BS. Gentleson calls Calhoun's reasoning BS. Of course, because Gentleson is a far left kook. He's a moron. Certainly Calhoun was an expert at splitting hairs, but at least two senators defended him in print. And the Senate lent tat, uh, tacit validation to his argument by clarifying its rules to explicitly allow the vice president to call members to order a development Calhoun called for himself during the controversy. If his intent was to weaken the power of the presiding officer, this was a strange way to do it. Further, if anyone was filibustering in the situation, it was the irascible Randolph, then serving a short stint, filling a vacancy in the Senate. Famous for his endless tirades in the House over the previous quarter century, Randolph posed a novel challenge to the Senate's rules and the presiding officer's authority. Historian Franklin Burdett, in his account of the filibuster's origins, focuses on Randolph, not Calhoun, and concludes that the Virginian had a protector, though by no means necessarily a better, in the vice president. In fact, what's left out of this story is that Randolph really didn't like John C. Calhoun. (laughs) The two didn't really get along at all. The old Republicans thought Calhoun wasn't enough of a purist. That's left out of this. Elder continues, Skipping over two other episodes that most historians consider the first filibusters in Senate history, one in 1837 and another in early 1841, Gentleson argues that Calhoun waited until the summer of 1841 to finish the job he started 15 years earlier. That summer, Senator Henry Clay and the Whigs were determined to push through a transformative legislative agenda that included a new national bank, higher tariffs, and a proposal for the federal government to assume state debt. Nothing less than a new economic charter for the nation. Senate Democrats, including Calhoun, fought a determined rearguard action against Clay, offering amendments and arguing over points of order until Clay threatened to institute rules limiting debate. Gentleson, uh, Gentleson portrays the 1841 episode as the ex nihilo creation of the filibuster at Calhoun's hands. Organizing Southern senators in opposition, Gentleson writes, Calhoun deployed them on the floor to make speech after speech against the bill. Gentleson, Gentleson leans almost exclusively on Senator Thomas Hart Benton's memoir for evidence, and he writes that Benton's account crackles with the excitement of someone who realizes they are witnessing the birth of something new and important, perhaps a little bit dangerous. He singles out Calhoun's defense of minority rights in response to Clay's threat to limit debate as the key moment the fusion of speechifying with the principle of minority rights that came to define the filibuster. There are numerous problems with this picture, Elder says. Now, first of all, let me back up here. What was Calhoun trying to block? It wasn't slavery. It wasn't, this wasn't a debate on slavery. So see, what you're doing here is saying, well, because Calhoun defended slavery, then anything he did was a defense of slavery. You're looking at an entire tariffs, national bank. We're talking about the new... Administration 1841, right? 
1841. Now, John Tyler is president of the United States at this point. He was probably going to veto anything here, but Calhoun's trying to block it anyways, and for good reason, because this was all unconstitutional. He's trying to block unconstitutional legislation, something that these people had said for years was unconstitutional. So take that out. I mean, But then Elder says, there's numerous problems with this picture. First, this kind of coordinated obstruction was not new in the Senate in 1841. Benton himself had been on the opposite side in the 1837 filibuster that Gentleson leaves out of his narrative, facing off against none other than Henry Clay. Unsurprisingly, while Benton gleefully documents Democrats' tactics during the 1841 filibuster, he never claims that what they did was new, nor does he portray Calhoun as the Democrats' ringleader. Calhoun, meanwhile, never mentions his supposed invention in his correspondence from that summer. Filibuster historian Burdett rightly concludes Calhoun includes Calhoun among several other Democrats as leaders of the bank filibuster, but does not claim Calhoun single-handedly led the effort alone that he invented the filibuster that summer. Donaldson claims that Clay had never seen anything like what Calhoun was doing. But in fact, Clay in 1837 had himself done almost exactly what the Democrats were doing. And just that spring, he had done so again in a fight over a government printing contract. The records of the session in the Congressional Globe suggest that both men were aware of this. When Clay charged the Democrats with obstruction, he argued that it was useless in light of the Whig majority, not new or unprecedented. In response, Calhoun pointedly asked, Who consumed the time of the last Congress in long speeches, vexatious and frivolous attempts to embarrass and thwart the business of the country? Clay never answered. The 1841 filibuster was more dramatic than its predecessors, reflecting the magnitude of the Whig agenda, but the tactics were not new. Next, and crucially to his argument, Jettleson claims that Calhoun's real aim when he invented the filibuster that summer was to defend slavery. Now, Elder says this, It is almost never wrong to assume that Calhoun had slaveholders' interests in mind. Slavery lurks somewhere in the background of most arguments in this area, and there's little doubt Calhoun saw in Clay's plan a long-term threat to the economic and political influence of the South. Um, well, this is the... This is the argument that somehow, you know, obstruction, uh, opposition to tariffs was really slavery. Uh, opposition to central banking was really slavery. I mean, this is the argument, but I think it's a weak argument. And uh, it's not, there's, there are some cases where, well, I mean, if they can do this, they can do this. And Calhoun certainly said this in 1837. Well, if you can, if you can uh, have a force bill, then you can abolish slavery. But these arguments, long-term arguments, had always been there. But Elder does say this. So see, Elder's playing again, but, well, I mean, maybe you can say this. This is the Fehrenbacher argument, right? So maybe you can say this. But focusing slowly on, solely on the issue of slavery ignores what many Americans, including Calhoun, believed was more immediately at stake that summer. The depth of emotion stirred by economic issues in the 19th century, especially a national bank, is almost incomprehensible to us today. It had been Andrew Jackson's um, uh, obsession with killing the bank of the United States as an anti-democratic concentration of wealth and power that endeared him to many of his uh, followers. This was the main line of attack that Calhoun and other Democrats followed against Clay that summer. In a typical comment, Calhoun pointed out that Clay's bill to establish a new national debt could hardly be more advantageous to the banking industry. If this body, instead of being a Senate of the United States, was a deputation from Wall Street, Calhoun's fierce attacks on the nexus of financial and political power that summer won him a devoted following far beyond the South. In the run-up to the 1844 presidential election, he became a favorite of the so-called Loco Focos, northern working-class Democrats who were the Occupy Wall Street of their day. 
Well, they were the Jeffersonians, right? This is the, see, again, they weren't the Occupy Wall Street. These were Jeffersonians. This is where the Occupy Wall Street people are just completely stupid, too. I mean, because they don't really understand the origins of all this stuff. The anti-bank crowd was simply the Jeffersonian position, the John Taylor of Caroline position, that banks, fusion of banking and government was a very bad thing for the United States. Thus, Contra Dentelson was not only Southern senators who resisted Clay, but also prominent Northern Democrats like Levi Woodbury of New Hampshire and Silas Wright of New York. On the other side of the coin, Calhoun's fellow senator from South Carolina, the slaveholder and radical nullifier William C. Preston, was a Whig, one of Clay's allies. No wonder then that Sarah A. Binder and Stephen S. Smith in their history of the filibuster agree with Burdett in labeling the 1841 filibuster a partisan filibuster, not a sectional one, meaning that it was not primarily about slavery. Most of this stuff never was. This is what people can't seem to wrap their heads around. Everything wasn't about slavery. Even Elder says, well, they were certainly all thinking about slavery at some point or another. I mean, they just probably woke up every day thinking, you know what, I'm glad I have slavery today. They weren't always thinking about slavery. There were other things going on here. There was the Constitution we had to worry about, and people actually had real arguments in the 19th century, not over uh, how many billions we're going to spend on studying the reproductive habits of rats, throwing this stuff in the bill. This was not something people talked about. They talked about real issues in the 19th century. This is why I love the 19th century. Finally, if Calhoun's appeal to minority rights in response to Clay's proposal to limit debate was really a defense of slavery, then he had a very strange ally in John Quincy Adams, who by 1841 was serving in the House of Representatives. Before Clay tried to limit debate in the Senate, his ally, Representative Lot Warren, a slaveholding Whig from Georgia, had successfully introduced a similar rule change in the House. Adams protested and voted against Lot's motion. No friend of Calhoun or of slavery, Adams' vote against the rule change was an effort to preserve the weapon he had used so effectively three years earlier. In 1838, when he had mounted a successful filibuster against the annexation of Texas on anti-slavery grounds. Knowing that popular sentiment favored annexation, Adams stubbornly refused to bow to the majority, remarking that, quote, a very large portion of the people of this country, dearly as they love the Union, would prefer its total dissolution to the act of annexation of Texas. Adams held out for three weeks, and he won. Think about that. John Adams, the secessionist. John Quincy Adams, I should say, the secessionist. J.Q. Adams. Gentleman's story is about the Senate, not the House, but this artificially narrow focus allows him to ignore what may be the best example of an anti-slavery filibuster in American history, as well as a long-established tradition of filibustering in the House. Adams's heroic stand against Texas annexation perfectly illustrates Gentleman's definition of the filibuster as, quote, the fusion of speechifying with the principle of minority rights. The 1841 rule change limiting debate in the House meant that when Texas annexation reared its head once more a few years later, Adams would be powerless to stop it. Versions of filibustering lived on the House, however, for half a century more. See, what we have now, there's limits to debates in the House. Uh, that's a relatively recent development. You could actually have long debates in the House. The last episode in Gentleson's account is both the clearest example of Calhoun using obstructionist tactics to defend slavery and also the least convincing in making the case that he invented the filibuster. In the summer of 1848, several Southern senators, including Calhoun, resisted the passage of a bill providing a territorial government for Oregon because the bill also included a provision barring slavery from the territory. After a major speech on August 10th decrying abolitionism, Calhoun served mostly 
in a supporting role as Southerners successfully held off the majority for four more days until the last day of the session, August 14th. According to congressional rules, the Senate could not present a bill to the president on the last day of the session, but a resolution was introduced to suspend this rule and the majority seemed poised to pass it and consequently the Oregon bill. After a final protest on the morning of the 14th, Southern opposition gave way and Henry Foote of Mississippi announced that the minority would allow the resolution to pass. The weight of custom and a respect for majority rule would not allow the minority to carry their obstruction any further. After Foote's announcement, Calhoun bitterly reminded his colleagues that by the rules of the Senate, the Oregon bill was lost and the majority we well knew that and the majority well knew that. Then the resolution and the bill quickly passed, Calhoun lost. Johnson claims that by 1848, Calhoun lost all respect for the Senate's norms and that his comment is proof that he was willing to flout the majority's will if only his fellow Southerners hadn't folded, making him a precursor of those who would brazenly flout the majority today. Perhaps, Elder says, perhaps. But despite his complaint, Calhoun did not take the path that Senator John Davis of Massachusetts had taken two years earlier for precisely opposite purposes. Davis, a Whig, was one of two senators to vote against the Mexican-American War. He was opposed to the expansion of slavery. In August 1846, on the last day of the session, Davis successfully obstructed a motion to remove the anti-slavery Wilmot proviso from a military appropriations bill in the Senate, holding the floor until it was too late to send the amendment, amended bill back to the House for approval. Davis's lone stand is a better example of the filibuster as it would be known to history than anything Calhoun ever did. Ironically, Gentleson could have built a better argument by pointing out that even John C. Calhoun yielded to the majority, although not without getting the last word. So, I mean, this is, look, what he's just done here is lay out how important the filibuster was across the political spectrum. John C. Calhoun didn't invent this thing, and to say it's all about slavery and race is just completely stupid. It's also just completely stupid to say secession is about slavery and race. Here's or, or that it's about the Southerners always pushing it. Here's John Quincy Adams saying, well, we should break up the Union if we take Texas in. Or how about William Lloyd Garrison saying, we should break up the Union rather than being a Union with slaveholders. Or how about back in 1794, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth t- telling John uh, Taylor of Caroline, we should just break up the Union now in 1794. Or how about Northerners obstructing the fugitive slave law with states' rights and nullification? How about that? You see, all these arguments are just completely stupid. They're emotional arguments designed to get people on the left who have guilt problems to say emotional things that are just completely idiotic. John C. Calhoun did not invent the filibuster, and yet Gentleson is not completely wrong to associate the modern filibuster with Calhoun. As a political theorist, Calhoun is best known for his idea of the concurrent majority, the idea that consensus, not majority rule, should be the basis of constitutional democracy and that to implement this very this every major interest in a society should be given veto power over significant legislation. Filibuster scholars Binder and Smith have noted how Calhoun's theories prefigured the filibuster. But Calhoun's vision for how this would work in his own day was not the filibuster, but his proposal in an essay published after his death in 1850 for a dual executive, North and South, each with veto power. Ironically, the filibuster as it exists today is a closer approximation of Calhoun's theory than anything that existed during his lifetime. Jonathan points out that in a closely divided Senate, the 60-vote requirement to end debate instituted in 1975 effectively hands the majority a veto on any legislation. I think Gentleson is right that Calhoun would like the modern filibuster. Okay, so what? Yes, Calhoun was interested in a real majority, what he called a concurrent majority, not a numerical majority. That's important to understand. 
And what should we make of this? In a recent essay, historian Matthew Karp, who is one of these people that uh, has written a book laying everything at the feet of Calhoun, all of the expansion, all it was all about slavery. It's always about slavery. Karp is one of these faux uh, Marxist revolutionaries. He walks around in a flannel shirt with a beard. He's a hipster. I mean, this guy is completely laughable. But anyways, he's got an Ivy League job, so we got to think Matthew Karp's a great guy. Laid out the contemporary American left's obsession with historical origins, and especially with metaphors of generic inheritance and DNA that imply unbroken lines of historical inheritance and influence. History in this conception is not a jagged chronicle of events, struggles, and transformations. It is a, the blossoming of planted seeds, the flourishing of a foundational premise. The dominant images here are biblical and biological. In this conception of history, if John C. Calhoun can be shown to have inherit, invented the filibuster, or if it closely resembles his theories, then it is proof that it is evil. That word evil. Was John C. Calhoun evil? This is what the left says. This is what the right says. The neoconservative right. The Straussian right. I would say that word is stupid when it comes to Calhoun. This view of history also has been and continues to be influential on the right as when, for example, any link between critical race theory and Marxism is evidence that it cannot be trusted. But this is an impoverished view of how history works. One of the benefits of studying history, to be sure, is connecting the dots from the past to the present, but this work of mere connection is only a beginning. The real work and pleasure of doing history is that its course is unpredictable, full of unintended consequences and unforeseen events. Context can transform the same thing in one situation to the opposite in another. There, The lines of causation reaching in the present from the distant paths are real and often deeply consequential, but they are not straight or predictable. They require careful untangling and reconstruction. For instance, although written to defend slaveholders and nearly perfectly embodied in the modern filibuster, Calhoun's theories have, a, have a, had a surprising and unpredictable afterlife outside the United States. As the political scientist James H. Rees has suggested, the best example of Calhoun's theories in the world today is not the filibuster, but the 1998 Good Friday Agreement which brokered peace in Northern Ireland. The agreement established a diarchy that resembles Calhoun's dual executive and required separate majorities of both nationalists and unionist groups to approve important decisions. The structure of the agreement was partly shaped by the work of the political scientist uh, Liptard, who founded the field. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, who founded a, a field of democracy and who cited as an influence Calhoun's idea of the mutual veto. History is unpredictable. Now, I want to say speak to that for a second. Sorry for stumbling over a couple of words there. I want to speak to that for a second because uh, I worked with the man who was is, is still the Calhoun scholar in the United States, okay? Clyde Wilson. He was the editor of the Calhoun Papers for most of his career. And he talked always talked about people coming from all over the United States to study John C. Calhoun and how they really love John C. Calhoun and all over the world to study John C. Calhoun. More from the world than the United States, and this is a nice example of that. Historical perspective can and should inform our action in the present, but it has taken whole and it cannot substitute for the hard work of moral and political reasoning in our own unique historical context. The filibuster appears nowhere in the Constitution. It has been put to extensive and shameful use, warding off civil rights legislation. Binder and Smith identify 45 filibusters between 1837 and 1992 that focus on either anti-slavery or civil rights measures, the single most common target of filibusters. In its current form, the filibuster makes a mockery of the Senate's claim to be the world's greatest deliberative body by handing the, majority, the minority total veto power. All these things are true. 
They also happen to fit neatly within the narrative that Calhoun invented the filibuster to defend slavery, rendering any hesitancy to abolish it seem perverse. The idol of origins is an attractive god because it tells us what we must do. If the filibuster's opponents wish to avoid being misled by false gods, they have to ask inconvenient questions. What about John Davis and John Quincy Adams? What about the 289 non-civil rights filibusters, far outnumbering measures focused on civil rights, that Binder and Smith also found between 1837 and 1992? Does the fact that the filibuster appears nowhere in the Constitution mean that it's unconstitutional? Has the Senate, our political system, or our deeply fractured society changed in ways that might make the filibuster in some form necessary or even desirable? Now, let me go back to because it appears nowhere in the Constitution is unconstitutional. The Senate can make its own rules. That wouldn't make it unconstitutional. That whole argument would fall in like two seconds. The Senate can make its own rules, so can the House. So, it's not unconstitutional. Gentleson argues that the filibuster favors conservatives because they only need to stop things to accomplish their mission, while liberals need to do things. But does anyone doubt that Trumpist Republicans, if not conservatives, have quite a lot they want to do? John C. Calhoun did not invent the filibuster, but even if he had, these questions would still need to be answered before deciding its fate. The idol of origins holds out the alluring possibility of easy answers, but history rarely provides them. So this is a nice essay. I, I really like the fact that, that uh, Robert Elder took the time to do this. He is considered to be now the Calhoun scholar in America um, because of his newest book. But uh, I, I, some of the language in here is a little silly, but still, it's a good, it's a good essay that hopefully will stop some of this stuff in its tracks. I doubt it because the left doesn't care. They don't really care about being right historically. They just care about the rhetoric and the emotion. And I think that's the issue that Elder's trying to make a reasoned argument here. The left doesn't care about reason. They never have. And they're going to make emotional arguments because that's what works. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 